sensation is ultimate. Grief. Hilarious. Melancholy. Queasy. Longing. Uncomfortable. Provocative. Seductive. Disorientated. Welcome once again to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knight, bringing you stories of art and the art of stories. In this podcast, I discuss a guest artist's practice through the lens of a piece of fiction chosen by them. My interest is in being able to open up access to art by bouncing between books, the artwork, and most of all, the ideas shared between the two. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with the very talented Emma Cousin, who has selected Nausea by Jean-Paul Sartre. Emma focuses mainly on her exhibition, New Dirt, which is currently at Goldsmith Centre for Contemporary Art till 13th of December as part of Solos, alongside artists Apu Junior, Wachi Yarom, Lindsay Mende and Hari Pandal. Apologies, of course, for any mispronunciations. You'll notice on this podcast, I can barely do a French accent, and they're the neighbours. Verbing, vomiting, crying, leaking, spreading, morphing, thrusting, jostling, ghosting ideas, ghosting narratives, ghosting paintings. Emma Cousin is a figurative painter. And when I say figurative, I don't mean people. I mean definitely painted figures who seem to be staging their individual idiosyncrasies while participating in some sort of social clustering, playing around with how people might fit together and how they might fit together on a rectangular canvas. The group is momentarily balanced like a contemporary dance performance in freeze frame and Emma uses her confidence in drawing to play on them being outline depictions as well as her confidence in painting to have them pointing towards human flesh. She has a dynamic personality, encompassing other artists into her wider practice. She's welcomed exhibitions into her house with the Bread and Jam project. She recently curated an online animation exhibition called Unstilled Life with Paul Kerry Kent across galleries in London, Amsterdam and Hamburg. And just in case she wasn't busy enough, Emma started the Chats in Lockdown podcast as a way of keeping isolated artists in touch with one another. You can check out Emma's work on her website, emmacousin.info. That's cousin without an S. And thanks in advance for listening today. Emma Cousin, welcome to Art Fictions today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And we're going to discuss the book Nausea by Jean-Paul Sartre. I'm going to read my summary of the book. Mm-hmm. Nausea is a novel in diary form written by Antoine Rocotin, who suffers such frequent bouts of nausea that in the end he decides it is merely part of his permanent existence. Antoine spends his time in the cafe walking around the town, Bouville, listening to partial conversations of strangers and making observations about their behaviour. He often works in the library on a book he is writing about the Marquis de Rollebon. This is where he occasionally comes across the autodidact whose humanist convictions are a thin veil over his penchant for young boys. Mm. Which emerges very late in the novel. Mm. (laughs) He increasingly recalls his ex-girlfriend Annie to the point where he visits her only to learn they have no future together. Throughout the course of these goings-on, Antoine is friendless, bored and aloof. His past is a string of swashbuckling international adventures as ludicrous as they are plentiful. 
Having given up writing his book, he exclaims, How on earth can I, who haven't the strength to retain my own past, hope to save the past of somebody else? And as his own sense of existence begins to diminish, so does ours. The novel morphs into an inquiry of what it is to exist, observing that life, all life, is equally superfluous, and life's occurrences are simply random, and that is at the crux of what it means to be free. The end, or in so many ways, the beginning. I ended up going down all sorts of rabbit holes from Descartes to <laughs> Albert Camus, Simone de Beauvoir, Merleau-Ponty, Nietzsche, Gregory Bateson, John Berger. Uh-huh. <laughs> I exhausted myself. Yeah. I also found some time to look at your work, so that was, <laughs> that was good. <laughs> well, I was just going to say that's an almost amazing example of the many occurrences in the book where someone slips between the cracks or like there's a crack in the pavement and someone disappears or... It's almost like he's observing the detail that we don't notice either. So something to do with slippage of everything, time, weather, atmosphere, objects, meaning, words, those things all kind of come up. So I guess the reason I chose this, I found this so hard to have to, to, have to choose one novel to discuss. Yeah. Is, yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure most people say that, but I guess you think you'll choose one thing in your mind. You know, you have these consistent books, I guess, that, that you know are... Uh, pull you back or something. Whereas this wasn't chosen for that reason, I guess. The reason I started reading it in the first place, someone recommended it and said, it's one of those reading list things that you should read. And I like the title, I like the idea about being a sensation or a state, the idea of like being nauseous, uh, and a novel about creating that state, I suppose, which it definitely does. At points you really feel quite queasy and disorientated. The other thing is it kept repeating on me. I think that's the, the fundamental. <laughs> Maybe a bit like nausea, and nausea mm. repeats on him throughout the book, on Antoine. So I couldn't get it out of my system, and at times I felt myself relating to it, or maybe particularly in the studio, like trying to find a sensation for a face or a quality of atmosphere in a, for a painting. And a sentence would actually come to me in a way that has never happened and I feel like it was something that was sort of physical as much as anything else as an experience. So I'm actually really grateful to have read it again because I feel like I had a completely different experience just revisiting it for this and sort of trying to examine what it was that was so appealing and so kind of provocative the first time round. And my reactions to him as a character were completely different as well <laughs> this time round. So say, say a bit more about that. Um, well, I think it's interesting with a novel you often go along with believing in someone or hating someone or disdaining someone. You know, there's a sort of attachment there, um, emotional attachment to a character. And the first time I just felt like I didn't connect with him at all. I didn't really like him. I didn't feel like I knew or understood him particularly. In terms of imagery, I suppose, I couldn't have pictured him. But this time around, I felt like it was so much more vivid and something to do with revisiting the descriptions and the colour. I mean, there's so much colour in this book, um, whether it's chocolate and blue or yellow on a dark carpet. And black is a colour that comes up in lots of different ways. I think that sense of a person and their complexities and how lost he is, like, you know, he's sort of trying to find himself and he's quite depressed, I think, actually. And it's a novel about isolation and about loneliness and trying to find yourself and realise that you kind of just got to get on with it and try not to understand things all the time. I also liked the character of the autodidact. I feel like I empathise with him and I did from the very beginning. 
I saw the kind of pathetic side of myself. <laughs> this idea that I always want to know everything. They meet in the library and basically Antoine realises that he's reading based on the alphabet. So he starts at A and works through the books and reading every book in the library that way. So, and I just thought that was like amazing but also so painfully awful that like, because it's something I would do. Like that's the sort of thought I would have. Like, oh, I could start A and I'd learn everything. Um <laughs> So I like the ambition, oh the hopelessness, yeah. the kind of thirst for knowledge. He's so overeager. I could, I just really identify with him in a way that I find hilarious and, and a bit ridiculous. Absurdity comes up a lot as well. The thing that the first time around I liked and this time around was less appealing was the sort of dreamlike quality. And the only way I can kind of sink into that this time is thinking about sleep and states of consciousness which is interesting when I'm thinking about making painting because I'm quite conscious often of this idea of movement and consciousness like when you marry the two something starts to happen and there are activating moments in the book where he's either moving in space or running happens for no apparent reason so those two things this idea of like fluid consciousness in terms of it shifting states and then mobility or movement and I think actually that is something I'm massively thinking about in here in the studio in terms of a physical process and a practice, but also in terms of the characters I'm putting together and constructing. Yeah, that thing about uh, solitude or isolation. Oh. When I was reading it, there were so many other books that I thought about and things that I'd read and things that have stuck with me. And so I thought there's something in Death in Venice by Thomas Mann that I'm recalling when reading this. That was written in 1912 and this book is written in 1938. So yeah. they're not that dissimilar. And the quote is, Solitude produces originality, bold and astonishing beauty, poetry. But solitude also produces perversiveness, the disproportionate, the absurd and the forbidden. Mm. And that was so threaded through this book mm. about... Antoine being able to be removed enough from people to be able to think about them, let's say objectively, which mm. you can't really think about anybody or anything objectively, but it also just pushes him further and further into isolation, into mm. loneliness, into, as you say, probably depression. At points he also feels stuck in that space in the book and I think it's it's interesting in terms of what you're saying about observation. There's times when he observes things in such acute detail that it sounds like madness. Um, an example would be, like, he describes, out of the corner of my eye, my eye, I can see a reddish flash covered with white hairs. It is a hand. And hand, it's an interesting metaphor because it's something you hold on to. It's something that you also use to hold on to other things and you grasp reality or lose the, the hold on mm. it. But it's also what you hold on to in terms of other people. So you hold hands and that's a connection. And hands turn into maggots at certain points. Hands become something detached from his body, like dangling arms. I think it repeats like 15 times, this phrase, mm. dangling arms, my arms dangling. So it's almost like he's, that's the point of contact with the world that is slipping or he's trying to remind himself to examine the hand, but the hand then becomes an object, you know, it becomes something which is personified or becomes an object of disgust, repulsion. He does talk about disgust and repulsion with regards to himself quite a lot. 
I think it's his aunt who says that if you look in the mirror too long, you'll end up looking like a monkey or something like that. Yeah. And he says, what I can see is far below the monkey, on the edge of the vegetable world, at the polyp level, which I loved that comment, (laughs) uh, insipid flesh, palpitating with abandon. But he loves his hair. He loves his hair and it's red. And it's a constant point of contrast in the book as well. It's the only thing that's red or anything to do with red. Yellow appears quite a lot in this idea of like rotting or any, any color to do with that. Browns appear, blues appear, blacks reoccur. But it's the only color of sort of um, vibrancy or life as well. And maybe death and blood. So the hair is quite sumptuous too. So yeah, he's, he's not at odds with his hair. But it makes me think of the way he's also observing people and he sort of has a way of turning them all into cheeks or observing them inside out. I'm going to try and find a quote. <laughs> what you've done to me? Oh, no, I did the same thing. <laughs> Maybe we should describe that because it's really nice that we both have books with, like, hundreds of post-its coming out Blue the side. Blue and green. Blue and green <laughs> post-its. I think the reason I did that was because I kept thinking that's just delicious. Like, the way he describes things yeah. is so seductive. And as a painter, I, c- I mean, I can paint these phrases. I mean, so one example, this is near the end, but he says, blind eyes, a mouth as thin as a dead snake, and cheeks, the pale round cheeks of a child, they spread over the canvas. And he's describing the cheeks in a painting there. But this idea of the mm. cheeks spreading across the face as if it's malleable or as if it's contaminating okay. everything else. Mm. It's particularly when he says, it talks about colour, um, so his cheeks make a purple patch. And he talks about um, this idea of cheeks. Uh, hang on, there's another one. I looked at her big cheeks, cheeks, which stretched endlessly away towards her ears. In the hollow of the cheeks, under the cheekbones, there were two isolated pink patches, which looked as if they were feeling bored on that poor flesh. Yeah. And that way of yeah. animating cheeks, because they're so expressive too, so it, mm. in some ways it feels natural. But in other ways, it, um, it turns everyone into this strange, morphing surface quality where everything's malleable and everything is unpredictable and unknown and sort of seductive and repulsive. It's a bit like, like vomit, you know, that idea of it being sort of beautiful, ultimately beautiful to look at. But if you took the smell away, could you just stare at it and appreciate how beautiful it is? <laughs> The mix-up of, of bits and pieces that then becomes a new tapestry. It's like bits of food that are, are that are no longer anything, and it's n- nothing as a whole vegetable. I think is something that that came out to me thinking about sick and that idea of it being between states. It's not a solid and it's not a liquid, and it's sort of half digested. So I think maybe that's what's abject about it. It's sort of cast off of the body. But it, but looking at it as a painter, it's also got a lot of potential in terms of materiality, color. I mean, the color of sick is so weird. You know, and it is a bit like he's describing chocolate on brown and, uh, you know, chocolate on blue or the way that mauve starts to appear in puke is really interesting because it's a really tertiary colour, not much colour, not, not much food is mauve. So it's like colours decided to mix itself in your stomach and then you're seeing that in between state before it turns to shit. Yeah, I've never really studied that. <laughs> uh... Very closely, although we did have to speak on the phone the other day and I was a little bit late because I was cleaning up my dog's vomit. (laughs) But it's no accident, of course, to end up talking about vomit because Mm. the book is called Nausea. Mm. And at one point, Antoine says, the nausea isn't inside me, I can feel it over there on the wall, Mm. everywhere around me. It is 
one with the cafe. It is I who am inside it. And I thought that was such an awful idea that this was so present Mm. for him that he was sort of swallowed up in it. Well, he's also swallowed by his ideas and his imagination. Yeah. I don't know, it's a bit like the creative process. Sometimes it takes over the self and you get consumed and you, you can't take yourself out of it again. You're like, the idea that ideas keep coming and there's no way to stop them is interesting and is that like ultimately ecstatic. Um, and at points he has that sense of ecstasy because he can't stop seeing things and other things. And metaphors and similes start to occur to the point where it's overwhelming and it's actually quite exhausting. I'm trying to look for a passage that speaks to that particularly. Hang on. There's two examples. One is a a tree root that he describes, and that's actually interesting because the root is a thing that almost roots him back to earth again. But the seat happens just before that, this description of a seat. And a seat, I guess it's something we just sit on and don't think about. But I've been thinking a lot about the idea that a lot of things are named after human things. So words being dependent on the body. So a chair has a seat and a back and arms and all these Mm. kind of things. So they made it on purpose for people to sit on. They took some leather, some springs, some cloth. They set to work with the idea of making a seat. So it's sort of a simple idea. But then they carried it here into this box. The box is now rolling, jolting along with its rattling windows and it's carrying this red thing inside it. It's a seat, I murmur. It's it's a seat, rather like an exorcism. But the words remain on my lips. It refuses to settle on the thing. And then he goes on, this is a whole amazing passage about the seat being potentially like a swollen donkey, a dead donkey that kind of floats out to sea. And that whole passage feels like everything is contaminated. The seat, instead of somewhere to have a a space of rest and have a breath and uh, replenish his energy, they become contaminated too. So I guess it's also this idea of it taking over his whole world. Maybe because everything is contaminated, that's how he starts to talk about existence and the unreliability, I suppose, of understanding or knowing existence. This occurs to him quite suddenly, that he knows that existence is embedded in the things themselves. That's such a rubbish description. <laughs> what, what, what does he say? Well, I mean, it's quite, it's quite a distended part of the book where he tries to describe what it is, what existence is in itself, and and almost says that in defining it and putting it into a context, it becomes even more slippery. And then he starts to focus on this idea of being present. It is something that's really of the moment, as in a contemporary concern, not just in thinking about the moment of the pandemic, but also with the pace of life, with technology, with, you know, disembodied experience, and with have four more coffees and then carry on. I think this idea of slowing down and trying to just observe he gives himself the whole book to work this out right and that's kind of exceptional and as you know as humans we all have existential angst all the time and like you said there's a lot of philosophy about it but I suppose it was the idea that he's working that through in the novel and trying to really examine that for himself something that really meant a lot to me was that he takes all the things that he can see you know there's the tree and the path and the gate and whatever else is there and he puts them all on an even keel they're they're all equal to one another there's no differentiation between them I mean of course they're different shapes and they're Mm. different things I think Mm. I can understand what he means in that context of looking that when you are looking at things, and he is referring to the stuff of things, Mm. they are all as meaningful or as meaningless, depending on your perspective, as one another. 
Yeah, I think it's the way he draws attention to things that is so phenomenal in a way. Mm. There's a point, and I can't find the passage, but there's a section where there's a couple eating and he's observing their state. And and he says something like, their natural state is silence because they've sort of tried to have conversation and they lull into this normal state. And the immediate next observation is gristle that's been separated from what she's eaten. So like a line of gristle around the edge of the plate. And the fly that comes on the paper tablecloth... The awkward, uncomfortable, everyday, grotesque bits of life. I mean, you know, you have to poo every day. All the in-betweens as well, you know, and he's got that way of zooming into that, which I'm sort of fascinated by, and making it so visceral. Even the word gristle, he's finding extraordinary things and, and describing it in a kind of extraordinary way. He observes how people, you know, they try and hide those perversions or that regression or that control this is just an aside, I did enjoy all the little blips of conversation that he picked up on. Yeah. And I remember when my kids were young and I'd be waiting for them at the swimming pool and I'd sit in the car and wind down the window and just record what people were saying as they walked past and then making that into, I'm going to cut that out of the No, wait, I mean, I, like, I, actually way, like, <laughs> I actually like that because there's a point in the book where he's with the autodictor and they go for lunch and at the lunch he can hear this couple behind him mm. and he can hear what they're saying from a you know an outsider onlooker point of view it's like the ultimate romantic or oh, it's young love it's youth they're sort of toying with each other and they're, they're essentially flirting but he can hear what they're saying and he's like oh for god's sake get over it and have sex already you know he's like yeah. he kind of undermines the romance because he gets <laughs> to the nub of how trivial it is and how obvious it is I think that's another thing. His impatience with, with people is something that I kind of admire, that he, he's so brutal with everyone. Annie's probably the exception. He calls an old lady in the street a woodlouse, a woman in the cafe that he describes. She's got this illness and it's festering under her skirts. He's not very nice about children. He's either. not very nice about anybody. No, no. Um, even himself. So mm. I think there's an honesty in that, you know. Um, he's, he doesn't try to be anything else. And he also observes that he's like a grumpy old guy that is miserable. Mm. So even when he's chatting to the to the young didactic, he's saying in his mind, he's like, I'm being unreasonable, I'm being mean as well. And actually he's not very judgmental. Observationally he is, but he's mm. not in terms of moralistically at all, which again is interesting. Um, he's not really passing a judgment of the young guy who kind of gets into trouble and exposes himself. Mm. Um, Although he he does, when the autodidact talks to him, he invites him out for lunch and he admits to him, to Antoine, Mm -hmm. that he is a humanist Mm. and a socialist. And I can't remember how quickly it is that Antoine then you know, can sort of feel his fists full of rage and wants to punch him. Um, he's just really furious. Well, stab him, actually. It's more visceral because he talks oh, about... that's even worse, yeah. ...taking the knife he's holding. He's having dessert. Oh, that's right. And yeah. he talks about the cheese turning into nausea in his mouth yeah. Yeah. and then holding the knife and wanting to... And imagining stabbing this guy and blood going over all the patrons. And the, the red over the cheese. Exactly, the, the cheese, red over the, the cheese, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so he he is because his his he thinks this is ludicrous. Like, mm. oh right, so you love all men, do you? You know, do you love that guy over there? And he's picking holes in this idea because he's saying that there's something about that humanist position of loving mankind that's so broad and meaningless. Mm. 
Whereas once you get down to an individual level, it all falls apart. Well, and I thought that was really fascinating as well because it also undermines um, the intelligence. It kind of it really highlights or kind of exposes the fact that the autodidact is sort of is, is an ultimate optimist and is hopeful and is youthful yeah. and has got these one liners but hasn't really thought about it. And I think that we all have that, right? Especially optimists, because mm. you kind of cling mm. on to this stuff and you're a bit like you know, you repeat them, these mantras, but you maybe you've never thought about it deeply enough and then you get caught yeah, out by someone. Yeah. So what he's saying is as well is that he's like, I know this argument and he's, in a way, I feel like he wasn't blaming the autodidactic. If anything, he's saying, mm. I understand where this comes from and, and they're to blame, these these people who've given you these grand ideas that you don't understand. Mm. So he's ultima- ultimately, he's very patronising um, in his yeah. mind, I think. In a way, that's where Sartre makes a big comment through Antoine that if God doesn't exist, Mm. you can't really replace God with a different version. And then the book goes on to a sort of superfluousness of existence and a nothingness. You know, you actually, you don't have God, you don't have humanism, you've actually got nothing. Yeah. The end. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's funny because it's sort of true, though. I mean, it's interesting how he relates to Camus because Albert Camus said, if we all know we're going to die, why don't we just commit suicide? And it's hilarious. That's really funny. And it's the basis of a lot of tragedy. I think that is the crux of this in a way. But what's surprising to me is that he finds so much beauty in these descriptions, the words that he finds and the these kind of richness of colours and the way he describes how things shift. It's all just so beautiful. In a way that it goes from being people to being an observation of colour and space and light. He directly says, you know, we find it so difficult to imagine nothingness. Things are entirely what they appear to be and behind them there is nothing. And as you say, on the one hand, that's true. And he talks about existence being the stuff of things. But then he finds so much richness in that stuff, doesn't he? If you're kind of acknowledging that it's all awful and you're all doomed and there's nothing else to do you can do about it, then how can you find a way to carry on? And that's what he's trying to do. And it's ultimate because he's trying to write this book as well, which we haven't really talked about, but he's a historian and he's in the library every day and trying to write this book and research it and sort of loses interest. He sort of, he loses yeah, he does. a he connection to bored. the character and yeah. he becomes bored. And he also, I think, starts, because of this existential kind of examination, starts to realise that what he really wants to do is not that. So it's also this lovely idea of realising what you're doing is maybe not what you ought to be doing and how to shift that. So it's quite hopeful in the end that you've got to do what what you feel. Sensation is ultimate. So if you move towards that, that's potentially where it's at. That's where things can be done. And that idea of him starting a novel at the end is obviously hilarious also because he's, this is the novel. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so of I course, like that yeah. as a parallel too. I guess I'm interested in the experiences we draw from and how that informs how we make through and make from. Again, I'm going back to being sick, but the idea <laughs> of like the experience of being sick and how those things retain a memory in the body, but how unless you've projectile vomited, you don't know what that sensation is and there's a moment of where that happens to you that it isn't in your control. You're in nausea, maybe. You're in vomiting as a kind of position, it is amazing. It's the one place where you can observe yourself as if you're hovering just above yourself. 
when I did projectile vomit, and I've done it now maybe twice, but it's very violent, it's very physical, and it comes from something really deep down, like a guttural thing, so it's like right at the base of your pelvis, and it kicks out. It's this phenomenal force. It's like in The Exorcist, where it comes out in a line. You know, it's like a sort of... <laughs> and then it stops, and you're like, what was that? What just oh. happened? And I remember going, <laughs> my partner has a word saying, You've got to come and see this. This is like something that has to be witnessed. And it's sort of ultimately alive too, which is another concern, I suppose, that idea that you're you're most alive when you're the most vulnerable, whether that's crying, wetting yourself, you know, when you're old, you're leaking loads, or when you're a baby and you can't fend for yourself and you're also leaking. So that idea of leaking and the sort of levels of pressure in those leakages and what that tells us... Mm. A lot of people kind of put a lid on that. I mean, I definitely, either through politeness or just through trying to cope with life. So there's something really refreshing with, I guess, it being um, exposed, but also being excited by it and not scared of it. And that shifts in the book. At times, he's really scared of the sensation of nausea. And other times, he sort of notices it and it comes and goes. So that idea of fear and sort of the latent fear of what we can't control or the fear of feeling unwell or the fear of everything not being perfect all the time, they sort of all sit in a line with each other. And when he's talking about these characters in restaurants, they're often quite formal. They have top hats. There's an air of formality, of societal hierarchy to some extent. But he undermines that immediately by saying, like, there's a woman, she's just finished her meal and then she eats a crumb off the table. And the partner, the husband, he's sort of forgotten himself and he gets this hunk of bread and dips it in his sauce. So these slippages, the base qualities of how enjoyable it is to eat a crumb off a table. Where society breaks down a bit Mm. and the hierarchy starts to break down, that's something that is also very present in the book throughout, in ways that we probably can't get into. Between Balzac and Stendhal and his visit to the gallery to see all these pompous people, he talks about the general hue of the portraits being brown, where bright colours had been banished. Interestingly, I had a conversation with Andrea Wright about the novel Flatland, Mm. And that was the same, the mm. upper classes banished mm. colour. So indecent. Well, it's also where experiment happens and where new things could happen. So it's also the threat mm. of something new. It's interesting philosophically, though, thinking about are we looking backwards to a golden age or are we looking forwards to a future that isn't here yet? And Do you what mean does right that look now? Or well, through, throughout philosophy, I guess. I think now maybe more particularly because it's a moment of shift and change. You don't really get many opportunities to have to stop or question... I think thinking about the future and what that could look like is definitely present. I know in the novel it definitely questions privilege, whether that's the sense of belonging or a sense of owning space or mm. a sense of like comfort in oneself or a sense of purpose even. I think mm. that Sartre is talking about the lack of authenticity of Mm. anybody having a right to be elite Mm. because if you think about his idea where at the core of each of us Mm. we are all equal then things like elitism in the class system become nonsense in the museum he goes to the museum as a space to escape and think of it and the, the idea of them all being brown immediately took me to Rembrandt. He's sort of doing what Sartre's doing or what Antoine's doing mm. in self-examination and like self-exposure. And they're so honest. You know, it's a bulbous nose. It's thick yeah. impasto paint. It's yeah. 
It's not flattering. In in order to call out everyone else. <laughs> so in a way, it's yeah. almost the perfect parallel because that context of these people sort of looking around going doggedly one painting to the next and sort of nodding and moving on as if they were sort of absorbing culture or absorbing, I don't know, the talent or something. So coming back to Antoine and to the autodidact and mm. also to Annie, his mm. girlfriend, mm. one way you could read the book is that these are all aspects of himself mm. that he's wrestling with. And I'm going to shift on now to your work because mm. there is a sense of your characters not necessarily being different versions of all the same, let's say, person, but they are, to me, like characters who are all working together at something. Mm, I'm mm. not sure what that at something is yeah. because so much of them makes me think of contemporary dance mm. and how if you sat and watched a contemporary dance piece and you continually paused it, you would see people in really strange positions holding each other up, balancing people who are folded over and people who are stretched. And it all looks really precarious. And this might be a nice time to talk about the exhibition that's at Goldsmiths right now and your work that's in there. Goldsmith CCA is, yeah, the show's just open now and it's called uh, New Dirt. The thing I want to I just nod to first is this like, parallel with contemporary dance because I love that. And contemporary dance is something I'm definitely interested in and something that I kind of became a bit obsessed with learning about it about two years ago to the point where I started going to lessons, which was like fundamentally mortifying because I'm not a dancer, I don't have a dancer's body. So it was like a really embarrassing experience, but it felt so necessary to learn about the body Mm. and weight and I suppose what's possible because thinking about many bodies in the painting, thinking about different types of posture and what's possible and different angles of the body, I'm often using myself to figure that out. So I might be like stretching out and pulling Mm. on a bit of my face or if I'm going to put my fingers up my nose, how far do they go before it's painful or... If I was going to grab onto my jaw and imagine I was climbing with it, what would that look like? But dance is about the fall and the release, but also the suspension. So this idea of weight and holding is really interesting and where the movement happens within that. So I guess I was trying to learn a lot about that. But holding also is in what we hold in our bodies. So the tension or the posture or the, the aging or the elasticity or the beauty, the elegance, the line, the graphic or the trauma. I mean, dance is all about that as well. And I'm interested in dancers that aren't, what's the word, that aren't sort of stereotypical. Like Mark Morris is a great example. He's a choreographer and, you know, he, he's a dancer that doesn't necessarily look like a dancer as well. Right. He was kind of coming at it to shift our perspective of what we think a dancer's body is looking like and how they should move. So often you get this really tall, kind of beautiful, elegant figure, male or female, carrying or like hefting this giant figure across the stage. And it doesn't have many props, so they're becoming the trees, they're becoming the chairs, they're supporting each other in Mm. terms of environment as well. Which probably nods to a lot of things happening in the paintings to some Mm. extent. I think the accentuation and exaggeration you mentioned and this idea of the characters... Part of that is thinking about if I'm trying to show someone or depict an action, what's the best way of telling you that? And if I'm reaching for something, if the arm's like a third longer than it should be, then it's it's sort of verbing reaching. Yeah. So often it's like about ideation. Like, how do I show you this idea? And 
there might be lots of multifaceted versions of that idea that are being played out. But in the end, you're left with something which is sort of an active working out of something and a display. So there's not really a resolution that I'm not trying to present. This is the idea or this is where it stops or this is the conclusion. It's more like a digging, a moment of suspension where they're still figuring out Mm. this shifting. And it could also be figuring out who's in control and ultimately are the figures working together or are they breaking down? Does that relate to the depiction Mm. in some circumstances of limbs being three-dimensional and in some circumstances limbs being two-dimensional? I think that's a lot to do with composition, as in your eye is drawn to details. So to throw the eye around the canvas in the way that I'm sort of throwing bodies or imagining them moving in the middle of an act, like the idea of massage. So thinking like lots of people getting massaged, why are they massaging each other? Is it pleasurable? Is it painful? I don't know. Why, why do people do it? Is it to relax? Is it tightness? And then there's going to be a letting, letting go physically, something loosening. So I suppose I want you to kind of sense something, a, sen- a sensation again, which is where it links to the book maybe, but the idea of heat being part of that. So if something is three-dimensional, it might be kind of describing it as real, it is a leg or a hand, in order to point to the idea again. And then if it's less real, if it's something more graphic maybe, so flat, linear, maybe it's more to do with temperature or an exchange. Often those like arms that are, there's one mm. in um, Oxi, it's almost like a gradiated arm mm. from blue to sort of green mm. to yellow. I mean, it's almost like a process of filtering what the body's up to like clenching or the blood moving or so sort of thinking about it inside out the anatomy of bodies and presenting it all at once and then there's the skin which is paint ultimately so thinking about the qualities of skin and paint that kind of mimic each other which is funny because it's also layering so it's again it's about if you paint the veins underneath and then paint on top of it you're almost creating a physical body and then the gesture sometimes there's a real joy in if I'm making an arm with my arm obviously and it's one about the span of my gesture and how the gesture of that then points to the arm. So the arm points to what arms can do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's nice that it come, becomes looser because, you know, we don't easily go inside out of the body. But I also think we perceive that we're bounded or limited in a way that actually that's about perception. So we can probably do a lot more with our body than we expect, which I definitely learned working right. with choreographers and trying yeah. to learn about uh, contemporary dance. But even about posture and about how you present yourself, there's these things that you, we don't realise we're doing about boundaries and resistance and constriction or openness, which are naturally present, I think, in some senses. Skin is often stretched and pulled. I'm just looking around your studio now. Or <laughs> in some places gathered. Playing around with skin mm. is very much part of it. Including the breasts, they're often hangling and dangling and bangling into one another so do you want to talk a bit about skin then i feel like the breast is a slightly different thing because maybe it's it's parallel but they they often point and they tell you about temperature they tell you about comfort they tell you about pleasure and pain maybe they also tell you about age gravity weight suspension and this idea we're sort of trying to hold them up or i don't know that they could be used as advice to kind of to pass or carry or hold or Mm as a sort of form, if you like. There's something, you know, they fit in a hand, for instance, but depending how 
think your boobs are, I guess. But um, And they also change. So I like the idea it's not a static quality, even for oneself within one's body. They yeah. change throughout your life. Potentially produce milk. They're very active in the body. If you're on your period, they swell and they're a bit sore. They sort of start to stand in for other things, depending what stage of life you're at. Often mm. I'll refer to certain characters as he, even though they might have boobs. So the breasts are kind of playful device. So skin is playing a very different role then mm. in its folds and pulls and stretches. I was really obsessed with folds. Like the Mannerist um, paintings, Renaissance paintings have a lot of characters where it's only folds of material mm. and then you just see heads and maybe fingers. So the idea of what that was doing was really interesting for a while. So the folds being about a mass of bodies, about direction of travel. So they're often moving you or I onto something else. It's like we are moving forward or we are standing still or whatever. And volume. So I guess I'm thinking about the same things. They, they do all that. I think in terms of the faces, the skin's interesting because it often tells you about things like embarrassment or, I don't know, more kind of reflections of a judgment or like should this person be doing this thing? Like red in the face, the paint will be specifically mixed on the canvas to kind of imply that, if that makes sense. Yeah. You asked a question about the characters and they all come from different people. So I could see someone on a bus and they've got a great nose. Mm. Or you remember people in your life, like ex-boyfriends that you hated. Or like I met someone recently who had amazing nostrils. And I felt like I couldn't tell her that she had incredible nostrils. But <laughs> it was like a nostril big enough to take in the whole world in that space. So like holes and entry points and I suppose skin is similar but also completely the opposite in that it's a covering so the title of one of the paintings is python icing and icing was kind of a play on that idea of something that covers up in order to finish something so it's the thing that goes on at the end to make it whole like the cake is completed so the characters they're more frankensteins than they are anything else yeah, they're discombobulations yeah. of bodies bits are real bits are not real bits are about observed parts of bodies and other bits are about compositionally what needs to happen like if I need a thrusting movement in that direction as a diagonal I'll try and find a body part that could be in that space but I am often thinking about them revolving they're very rarely completely static apart I mean maybe apart from this show which is about grounding so I'm interested in that sense of how we grounded or not as humans and how uh, time maybe over the pandemic when everything was thrown up in the end, it seemed more chaotic, that the figures became slightly more rooted and slightly more, um, there's still the jostling, but they're sort of searching. Maybe that's the question. They're ultimately searching for something. We don't know what it is. And I'm searching and making them for the meaning of a word. So to understand a word play or to figure out a word that I like or I don't understand or I'm kind of obsessed with words and where they fail. And Is that where New Dirt comes from, this sort of grounding? Yeah, New Dirt was the idea of looking at something afresh, I mean, as a, on a basic level, but also that idea of putting your hands in earth, you know, mm. going back to sort of basics and thinking about the contact we have with the filth of life and how can we get closer to that to understand things better? Maybe brings us directly back to the book. But yeah, that idea of, of re-evaluating, of changing perspective, of trying to re-examine and dirt being obviously potentially paint as well. So so the idea of new dirt is like, how can you, how can painting be fresh? How can the paint become something new? How can you paint as if it's all a discovery? It's all as exciting as it was the first time you did it. And a lot of these paintings do feel like that. They have felt like that to make. 
mainly because of the colour shifts. I think this is the most cohesive body of colour in the work in that it's a really weird palette and it's not one that was super conscious. It wasn't, you know, decided beforehand, but as they emerge, those colours are what feels like paint. It's sort of a messy, mucky, dirty... You know, I, I, I am covered in it normally. So for them to feel so kind of zingy and jewelly and, I don't know, vibrant and bold, they're really bold. And there's something in that which is so interesting, that, that antagonism between the process, the materiality, and then the kind of the refinement and the saturation and the emotion that's loaded with colour as well, all mm. that stuff which mm. people see when, when they're looking at it, you know. Well, I dressed appropriately today because <laughs> I'm in red, yellow and blue, which... I don't even think I would normally wear those three colours together. And I did feel very much at home aesthetically with (laughs) paintings because there's such big blue skies in Mm -hmm. all of them. And, well, they're sort of like blue rooms. So maybe we could talk about the colour for a bit because Mm -hmm. on the one hand, I feel, yeah, they're bright and bang and, and they've got so much gusto. And the, at times, hands and feet, which seem to almost have the same purpose. Mm. The hands are not very clearly hands doing handy things and feet doing feety things. And they're sometimes sort of negotiating with the surrounding blue as if it's... I don't want to say water because it doesn't feel watery at all. Mm. It's more solid than that. And then you get these browns and scrubby parts and then you'll see this sort of odd pale green. I ended up taking photos of little snippets of colour just Mm. to try and understand what was going on. I mean, that's a great description. It's always exciting when those things are really affecting... (laughs) Yeah, I think the blue background was quite specific in this one. The the background is a weird one for me, and it's something that other painters that know me will know. It's been the biggest struggle for me mm. as well, because the figures always came, they always almost painted themselves, and then it was this like stalemate of like, oh shit, what to do with the background? Well, it's more so, like a surround, I feel, than a background. Yeah, about two years ago, I started to realise I had to get to grips with that and own it, whichever way. Like, if it was this idea of like surrounding the figures, to think about that and think about, okay, what does that mean if I'm sort of painting them in to the painting? Because it really feels like... Like you're kind of locking them in. I don't know, it almost feels threatening. Like the figures you talk to them, like what are you feeling and why are you doing this? And God, you're weird. And you know, so when you're painting them in, when the background starts to be applied, that kind of locking is often a bit like um, suffocating them or exposing them. Like some of them are quite backlit, like there's a graded color, so it makes it look like it's like a TV screen or a cinema. I quite like the idea of you're watching something unfold and you've got to trust that something's going to happen in a way. So I liked that and and obviously theatre is potentially there as well, this idea of a a liminal edge, which is this ground, which is generally painted at the bottom of the paintings, this sort of lime. Some of them are much more kind of nodding at mud or telling you that really literally. It's about atmosphere. I'm sort of thinking a lot about weather and what that does. Mm. I love phrases like under the weather because these figures are all under the weather. Like the weather is what is holding them in the space. Yeah, Um, yeah. And it really shifts if that isn't there. They're a really different thing altogether. Because I did sort of toy with that for a while as well. And like I said, it was one of the biggest, one of the last things to come together to kind of understand. And the blue, the more I understood it, the more I sort of was looking to art history and thinking, what is this thing about cold colours? So looking at that, in an obvious way, it's about distancing. So the warm colours, and then it grades out to the cold colours. But looking at examples, I guess, like, I don't know, 
Van Eyck or like the, the Mannerist painters do it beautifully. Um, Pontemo's deposition is graded and it's kind of greenish as well. So there's sort of qualities of the colours that exist in those paintings and why they exist. And some of it is this sort of cerebral paradiso kind of perfect space, purity of space. So there's a desire there, which I really like. This idea of space that's just out of reach, but you sort of want to touch it. Like when you're on a walk and you look at a mountainscape and the sky is massive, there's a blue that's sort of just out of reach. And mm. then you go another 10 miles and it's still out of reach. So, And then the more the blues became an interest, I was then buying more blue colour. I was interested in cobalts and ceruleans and, you know, trying to think about all the different types of blue and how they might start to counteract or fight with each other. So often it's not one blue. It might be four different blues or all things painted over or it's gone brownish or it's gone purplish or it's gone greenish and then it's sort of gone bluish again. So yeah. it's these shifting spaces. They often aren't flat or static and the closer you get to them, you realise they're brush marks as well, some of them. And to grade out as well is this kind of wonderful process of moving from one side of the canvas to the other, moving through the colour. So mm. it's quite enjoyable, but it's, often quite brutal in terms of labour. It was really fun coming into the studio here and mm -hmm. seeing the painting that is behind me, which I almost <laughs> want to swap places to think about the sort of greenish blue that's holding that painting together because in the exhibition, I think it is the painting, the big painting called New Dirt, yeah. where we have people whose hands and Feet, hands and feet, yeah. are literally rooted into the ground, mm -hmm. which is another nice thing to talk about. They're just staying on colour for the moment. That top left corner has a gradation in the blues that reminded me of when you take a photo of a painting. Because it's working on less pixels and it's simplifying what you're looking at, it will create lines of colour or bands mm -hmm. of colour. Mm -hmm. It's the same when you look up paintings online. Sometimes the same painting will have this greenish background and sometimes it will have a much more bluish background, sometimes it will have a more purplish background. So it almost becomes a very unreliable knowing. Yeah. So as you say, you have this sort of certainty of this blue, mm. but it's always unattainable. I think we also trust blue because we know it's the sky and you sort of read that without being told in a way in painting. When it's put in that area in a painting behind figures, it's ultimately a shorthand for sky and open space. Mm. Or the sea, I mean it could be the sea. So this idea of water and the sky, which is basically what weather is. So it's like a filter that is inherited somehow when you're tiny. You kind of learn that shorthand like grass is green and if you say mm. brown it's poo brown or whatever. So. I'm quite interested in that and sort of disrupting that a little bit and the idea that, yeah, you go in and maybe immediately see that it's blue, but then you sort of question where they are. So I like the idea it's not just a sort of a punchline. It's less stable. But, and, but it also nods, this is sort of going into a slightly different area, to Renaissance paintings, which that's what I was actually thinking of when I thought of looking up paintings online. And I suppose wanting to move on to the wall drawing, very much like a Renaissance wall drawing. It's climbing up the wall, it's a Jacob's Ladder, it's like the Sistine Chapel where you have the hand outstretched. In this case, there's no other hand there. <laughs> it's only the structure for the light system on the ceiling. <laughs> well, but then there is the hand in the painting below it that's reaching up. I don't know, it's sometimes interesting seeing drawing next to painting because it might undo something, this idea of it sort of showing you how it's done or mm. 
wall drawing was something that I started about two years ago on a residency. This was in America. I'd shipped all my materials home. So I only had this little pot of like um, black printing ink and a Chinese brush that someone had bought me on holiday and given me. So I'd never used it. It was sort of something I wasn't that precious about. And this ink, which was just sort of sat around, it was the last thing left, I guess. We had to do an open studio, so I just thought I'd paint on the walls. I didn't have anything to lose. It wasn't precious. It wasn't, mm. you know, a big gesture. But it opened something up to how bodies are in spaces. But on a wall, they then become part of the room, the architecture, the doors. I mean, hopefully the paintings do too. The paintings are generally as high as a door if they're a big painting, 190. So they're based off human proportions. They're life-size figures. Though those characters, they play out really, really differently, I thought, than the paintings. Because in the paintings, there's something very concise about the, I'm going to just call it staging of the characters. Whereas the wall drawing. Have you ever seen a litter of puppies? How they all sort of climb over one another and they step on each other's heads and they sleep in all (laughs) different ways and they're all overlapping and... That's what these people more reminded me of. They were like a community all struggling to do something. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what they were struggling to do. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was imagining them as a community, thinking a lot about when I was sort of building the ideas for the drawing, it was three tiers originally, thinking about the sort of the three tiers of social class, I suppose, um, thinking about high-rise living, thinking about how we do live on top of each other, literally, you know, we're in a city, and like you were saying, High Rise, the book. And yeah, about the Bala book, High Rise. So I guess where people are most comfortable in that negotiation and who is supporting who and who is uh, compromised and who is sacrificed even and who is desperate and who is mm. kind of oblivious, you know. So I was sort of thinking about the figures being, but they're structurally important because they're building top of each other. So to reach the top of the room, you have to use figures to sort of physically climb up, which is sort of more of a compositional device, which is how the paintings come about. It's this compositional configuring of like, how do these things fit together? How can they move? Because you can't do it on your own. So like one idea would be, how would they climb out of the canvas? And they'd need to like make themselves into a ladder and then one would get off Mm. the canvas. So those ideas I find kind of infinitely exciting because there's so many iterations that could happen and so many different boundaries that are being trodden on literally so you as a painter are figuring out how these figures are going to be figuring out in a way yeah yeah yeah. and how then it might make us figure out because I think it's also about trying to think definitely about community it sounds a bit cheesy which is why I'm always a bit reluctant but you know I'm working in isolation in a studio but I am in a community of artists and I do really love that and I am really interested in other Mm. artists work and painters and But societally, it's like, how much mobility do we really have? And I think questioning the physicality of that, like the literal quality of that, whether that means that you can't reach the top of the door in this instance. You know, there's a guy at the bottom who's just praying. And maybe that's the one that's kind of contented. Maybe not. Maybe that's the one that doesn't have a choice. And then there's other ones that are, the eye sockets have become the toes of another figure, partly because in making the gesture for an eye socket, it made me think it could become a toe. Mm. So there's something nice about the transmutable bits of the body. But also that in order to reach higher, something has to support it from beneath. With this, because compositionally it is going up a wall and it's much bigger and it has a sort of energy to it. And I began thinking about if all the paintings are grounded, literally, like they're very hung really low intentionally. And they're all about going to ground, kind of sifting through dirt, looking to nature thinking about structures in nature, systems in nature, sort of learning from the simple thing of touching ground, touching down. This drawing could fly up. It could be the thing that's aerial. It could be the thing which is maybe ascending 
but at the same time it can be descending and falling down collapsing so I really wanted this thing that had a tension between sort of growth like a tree and then collapse like a building that sort of uh, scale of tension too in terms of figurative scale like what it feels like so the size of a building or the shape of a waterfall and what it became was this liquid narrative because as it's made the story that I thought it was about sort of evolves a bit too so they end up slightly more clinging to each other or reaching out and extending and nodding to the paintings so with the paintings in the room it was almost impossible not to acknowledge them so that painting on the wall, <laughs> yeah, that's all a series of outlines and I found a really nice piece, again, going back to the book, because it threw up all these different books and, <laughs> and writers and quotes, etc. And there's a lovely essay by Gregory Bateson and he's talking to his daughter and it's called Why Do Things Have Outlines? And he quotes William Blake who says, Wise men see outlines and therefore they draw them. And he also says, mad men see outlines and therefore they draw them. And his daughter is getting quite annoyed in this exchange, by the way. But he also (laughs) asks his daughter, and this is what really stood out to me. I thought this is such a lovely question. He's trying to get to the nub of what she's asking him. And he says to her, why do we give things outlines when we draw them? Or do things have outlines whether we draw them or not? And you've got a real play in and out of outlines. And in fact, in one painting, there's a blue arm that comes across on the bottom of the painting. And it just says to me, this is paint. (laughs) I'm drawing with a paintbrush here. And then in other places, there's no outlines at all. Yeah. I'm excited that that's happened in a way because it's about drawing. So, I mean, I've got a fundamental interest in drawing because it's, it's this thing that comes out of nowhere. It's a line that can then describe something. It can communicate, it can narrate, it can dismantle. There's actually an amazing lecture by Amy Silman, which is online, which is about verbing, all the things drawing can do. And oh, it's this wow. massive list of words and it's yeah. really amazing. But I just, I like the fact that it's this thing to interrogate as well. So that can be interrogate something you don't understand, an idea, an image, a sensation. You know, it's like an endless tool to understand or to uncover or reconfigure or connect I draw a lot and it's quite a compulsive like almost addictive thing I guess drawing in my more everyday practice is like a biro jotting on the back of something like a great place is to go to a lecture because I always have ideas for drawing for painting Mm. so some of it is jotting like studies down uh, and then I think other things come to you, like like uh, almost like poets talk about words coming or arriving, this kind of autogenic thing, that they sometimes images arrive and I feel like I have to get them down. So it's like a sort of compulsive get out the body because otherwise I'll kind of go crazy thing. So there's different levels of drawing that happen within my own life, I guess, and my own practice. So because I draw a lot and the way I make drawing is really different in the sense that anything can exist in the drawing. It's much more potential... <laughs> You know, you might see a series of 10 drawings and they, they all look like they're made with very different materials or very different types of handling. So there's this freedom in drawing for me as well that is exciting. But it's also direct. There's no words, there's no like working out, there's no sort of fiddling around with colour or washing brushes or, you know, you can literally grab a biro and the line is there and it's, it's much more direct than speech for me. So it feels like the most clear way to communicate. It's been that way since I was really young. I find it also the most direct way to communicate with myself. 
yeah. I, I would understand more from what I'm doodling or drawing or whatever comes from my hand. I would trust that probably more than what I might think consciously. Maybe, but then I feel I'm startled like constantly by what comes out. I mean, like, where does that come from? So <laughs> I don't think I'm, I'm not as conscious. It's, it just comes out and then there's another one and it, I, I don't really think about it in, like that, I guess. But I um, think that's why it, it does startle you because whatever's brimming away in your subconscious, yeah. it's going to come out through your hand. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I've always wanted it to exist in painting more. So, as I mean, as a painter, hopefully you're always learning and you want to do it forever. So it's like a, nev- a never-ending learning problem. I've just figured out, I don't know, hands and now I can't do blue or I don't know, whatever it is. It's a constant revolution of, of different types of learning, which isn't why maybe why I like it so much. Like the autodidact, it's like yeah. a, a never-ending library of learning. But... I suppose it's also exciting because you can set yourself like little ambitions. One of them might be to be as close to drawing as possible. So thinking about the line the brush makes and the directness and that painting specifically was made thinking about that, sort of exposing the paint to be one gesture or three scribbles or linear qualities, I guess, that you can get from that. And often the figures are outlined in that sense too, a bit like a cartoon, partly to emphasise that they're cutouts, that they have this quality of the flat background and then they're sort of flat but also voluminous in some areas but also to nod to drawing to sort of think about where a line connects and actually this this is the first show that I've managed to retain a bit of the ground the raw ground in each painting and I say retain because often it's this thing of sort of making it one thing or another like how can it be drawing and painting or when does it become just painting so how are the two set alongside each other I'm really interested in so I think that's something I'm still playing with in the next mm. series. I'm kind of thinking about black and white only, which is going to be really weird to having made I'm so some, shocked. Having now just made loads of colours, but <laughs> it's a t- it is a way to make really, really, really address the line and have that as this graphic. I don't like the word graphic, actually. It doesn't really speak to what I'm doing, but I guess it's a different quality because there's an inside and outside of a line too, and it's a bit like what you were saying. It's an edge, but it's also a solid thing in itself. Yeah, and I think that there is something about what unfolded in making that wall drawing that made me think about if you only have a black line and it connects to the other black line, it, there's no markations between the bodies. So there's something interesting about that and this idea of the three-dimensionality that the distancing is almost impossible. The wall is still totally there. It's absurd. It's completely absurd. And that's really interesting to me. And a delight in that, mm. in the same way that a blank page with a little doodle on is often the best thing ever. So for all those bodies and all that movement and physicality, there's Mm -hmm. also the presence at times of geometrical shapes. And you've got trigonometry, which is one of the paintings, where you have three figures who are trying to figure out where the three-sided triangles go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Everything's in threes. Yeah. And I thought that was fascinating, but that's not the first time that's come up. You know, there is all this sort of well, where do these fit exactly? And I'm a massive fan of triangles. In mathematics, (laughs) triangles are a shorthand for change. Mm. And I also like its sort of awkward pointiness. And that (laughs) pointiness is really emphasised where somebody, say, pointing a triangle at their genitals, saying, Mm. well, how does this fit? What's this got to do with all that flesh and stuff? Do you want to tell me a bit about where that comes from? Yeah. So rather than thinking of myself as a figurative painter, I'd rather think of myself as someone who's working with biology and geometry. Oh, okay. Maybe that also explains yeah. the, the line of the arm versus the real arm. So that's always been there to some extent. I mean, compositionally, geometry is there because you're thinking about 
triangles is a great device to build compositions with. So actually in that painting, trigonometry, the figures are actually making triangles with their legs as well. And it started with the phrase, if you cut off your nose to spite your face. So one of the figures in that painting doesn't have a nose Mm. because it's been chopped off. If you chop off the end of your nose, it's a triangle. So I was trying to think, where would that go? Like, where could you fit it back on the body? And also because it's fallen off, I I would imagine you forget it even came from the nose. So it starts to relate to different parts of the body, like the hand or the, the armpit or the elbow or the bits that are pointy. But I also like the violence of that, that this thing's been severed and then it has to be reattached and that it is also potentially a weapon. So something sharp, it could puncture something. A triangle also points, so it also is potentially pointing in a direction or trying to point you to somewhere. I was just interested on a really basic level thinking, okay, it could be a nose, it could be boobs. So that's another shorthand for boobs. Mm. And thinking about Madonna's bra, you know, that idea of the type of boobs, which are exactly triangular shaped. But then what does that mean? And is it a feminist kind of sharp position? And then a penis could be like a pointy triangle. Also, a vagina is like the inversion of that. The idea that the triangle could go in and out and it represents both genitalia was really interesting because it starts to take away gender in a way that is all genders. So yeah. it's not negation. I really like the fact that these triangles are on, on show, they're out there. They're not kind of apologetic and they're not... Mm. In some ways, they're like beacons are shining. Some of them feel like light even. So it's sort of like I was imagining like shedding light on the vagina. Like, da-da, this is an mm. amazing space. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so the, the one at the bottom, although mm. people see it as like insertion of mm. a triangle, which it potentially could be, I was also imagining this like light shining out of it, like this, mm. you know, an orgasm space, basically. Mm. So mm. it's kind of a complicated painting in that sense. Yeah. Which is yeah. why trigonometry felt really good because it's mm. almost like knowing an answer. Like if you show you're working out, you got points for that school, mm. even if you didn't get the answer right. Your ideas about geometry had me thinking actually about yoga and the idea of balance brings me to the animation that you have done for this exhibition. And that's about meditation and another kind of balance and focus, but your mind kind of wandering to all sorts of things. So how did that animation come about? I guess it's this idea of going to ground and grounding and actually relates directly to the triangle because when you sit in a seated position, like ground, most grounded, you're, you make a triangle with your legs and your bum, basically. Yeah. So I was thinking about the shapes that you make in, I do practice yoga, but quite a really, really nascent uh, meditation practice, which the series of drawings that are animated implies um, is sort of failing, <laughs> like <laughs> endlessly because of the way my imagination works. So, yeah. But maybe it's also winning because of that. So there's an element of, you know, I'm, I'm sort of slightly taking the mick out of myself in the way it's put together yeah. because I sort of I'm trying to take it seriously but I'm also constantly drifting off into different directions and being distracted and it sort of starts off with great intentions and then it collapses really easily so the, all of the drawings in that series came from yoga nidra meditation so it's a specific meditation where you lie down and you talk through your body and I would get these incredible sort of ideas for drawings afterwards. They weren't even incredible ideas. They were just this urge to draw or get mm. something down or an image yeah. or a story or a character. So this collection of drawings built up over time. And they were all made with this little pot of ink and this little um, kind of scratchy ink pen that's just by my bed. I don't even know why it was there. Um, so I do the meditation. I go to bed. And, so I'd make these drawings with this quality of like scratchiness. 
And they're quite pared down. They're just one scratchy line to describe a posture or a sensation. And then I sort of had this idea of, yeah, bringing them together in some sort of animation, even in a, in a meditation practice. You do move through postures. And I was thinking about, I mean, Nuda, the, the title of the show, is also very much about the fact I've been gardening. So the idea of going to ground physically in doing so, is something in the soil that releases like serotonin and endorphins and stuff. And so it's a physical high, which you also really? get. Yeah. So I've been researching this stuff and I'm like, why does this feel so good? Lots of things in nature give off certain things that make the body chemically re- respond or physiologically change slightly. And the other thing that's been happening in this sort of grounding or digging or dirt, I was being visited by lots of memories. So memories of people that I might have lost in my life or memories of childhood, you know, and speaking to those people as well. So in a way, like connecting with my history, my past, my memory but not in a traumatic way at all, in a purely kind of ethereal and positive way that then felt like I almost was discovering a sense of self Mm. in a bigger way as Mm. well. Mm. So again, the parallels to meditation felt really kind of explicit, um, more than they probably might have done normally. But I had this bit of dirt that I was digging in and I was finding things in the dirt too, like actual physical things. So the shell that's in that film was found in the earth. (laughs) So then that reminded me of, like seashells and transportation devices, like things that can take you to other places, even when you're stuck. So and that idea of leaving your body in meditation is also something that really appeals. When you can leave your body and float off to somewhere else and yeah, yeah, yeah. come back. So Preferably not that point where you die, because I think you do it then. I mean, but yeah, I know. this is like the second time in two days someone said what I'm describing is death, which maybe is the case. <laughs> it's made really basically. It's quite honest in that it's not a slick thing it's the first one that's sort of narrated it has the voice which is my voice yeah and it's a written text so I've essentially spoken the text on top of it so it's sort of a bit experiment it's probably the most experimental thing in the whole show that's a nice space to play because I know you've also done the animation for Ambit magazine mm. well, wash your hands yeah that but, came out of frustration. I was just angry that oh, really? the patronising message, and I was sort of thinking, I'll show you, wash your hands. and <laughs> I don't know, I just found it really affronting. But anyway. I thought it'd be nice to talk a bit about your influences. And you had said to me, we had a quick conversation on the phone. It wasn't quick at all. <laughs> we had a lovely conversa- long conversation <laughs> on the phone. And uh, you told me about Samuel Beckett and Mirandi. And I was thinking of both of them with regards to this idea of simplicity, because we also talked about folk music mm. and your going back to your classical training and symbols for different sounds in Mm. in music anyway I was thinking about this in terms of simplicity like folk music and Beckett where there's this emptying out that he does on the stage Mm. and he then ends up with this very simple portrayal of people becoming vessels Mm. you know for ideas and Mirandi is doing the same and the opposite to me, he's more filling in. He is creating simplicity where vessels are people instead of Beckett's people are vessels. Mm. Coming to your painting, there's also a simplicity about those and this idea that Bateson is talking about, about outlining things. He is talking about trying to have clarity of ideas and trying to not have everything fudge around the edges so that there can be a place for understanding things. And I wonder if you talk about that 
simplicity that you're getting to with all your drawings and all your paintings and as well as you're interested in Beckett and mm, folk yeah. music and yeah. everything that I just mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm interested in something which is attached to sensation. So something that isn't, I mean, it is ocular, but something that moves away from language to the point where, like, you can sit and listen to a Beckett, particularly something like uh, What It Is, which I think is the specific one I referenced, but that idea that you are transported through the quality of the series of timbre of the words. It's not the words themselves necessarily, particularly in the plays for female voices. So that idea of coming away with a sense of a feeling rather than an idea of what it was about. I'm attached or intrigued by or or turned on by that thing, partly because it leaves you trying to figure it out and partly because it affects you so so individually, but collectively. Yeah, in this very same way that nausea, you do feel yeah. nauseous yeah. because you're so disoriented. Yeah, totally. It's those moments where you're caught out, and I think we both felt this, but this idea that you start to think, am I mad? Like, have I read this wrong? So he sort of starts to make you unravel as a reader, I think, or I felt that. And I quite like that. There's like this idea of um, the onus on the, the reader. I mean, John Cage is fascinating because he kind of, he lent so heavily on that, this idea that you could sit and wait indefinitely for a piece of music to never happen. And I guess folk music is the opposite in that it's so generous. So there's something about folk music which is much more about conveying a sensation like um, grief or melancholy or loss or longing or or filling time like Tippett's spirituals for instance are all about filling the time of picking cotton they're so moving and you can feel the weight of the time and the relentless repetition of that activity Mm. but it's also communication they're passing a song around somebody starts a song and basically passes it over to someone else to continue the song and the narrative can shift so everything can happen then and how singing affects you physically so it's a transportation device again Hmm. um it kind of takes over the body and it can make you very emotional it can make you moved It, it can jangle you up inside in a way that even if you're not singing you know you're calmer and all the muscles are on your throat have relaxed so i'm just interested in how these things often affect the body as well I think that's true because I feel that when you are listening to something, it's almost like you have to make space in your body for the sound to fill your body up. And then you also mentioned Mirandi. Where does that come from? So it's a bit like um, nausea in that it just, I just keep coming back to Mirandi. Some some painters you kind of learn about and then you sort of, you don't just disregard them, but you feel like you know what you need to know and then you move on a bit. Mm. And some painters, for me, really represent a time in my life. Whereas Mirandi feels like he sort of floats continuously (laughs) through my mind, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I find myself looking at them again and then maybe even seeing them unexpectedly and being brought back and back and thinking, God, what is this about? Like, why are these so intriguing consistently? They're really startling in the flesh because they're not as simple as they seem. So, you know, the mystery is very much there. But yeah, I always like the story that he was a bit fanatical about how he kept the studio and he would have a setup of still life objects that would essentially never be cleaned and be covered in dust over years. So I think the average is seven years. And so what he was painting was essentially objects covered in dust. So as he was applying the layers of paint, they could potentially be a translation of the dust. There's an element of that laying down mm. of time and weight and colour and faded edges and the kind of muffled quality that they have as well. It sort of slightly whispers. It sort of remains mysterious or remains unfolding. 
I think it's interesting as well that you have this passion for folk music. So you, did you participate in a lot of folk music singing or a little bit i mean there's there's a handful of um mm. like Ar- irish folk songs particularly that i would have mm. sung and i did i did sing classically and since the age of eight i sung about three times a week all the way through university as well psalms as well and gregorian chanting so i also like that tradition that is passed down it just occurred to me when you were talking about folk music that there's this constant sort of reaching out and yeah. making connections with people. And you've had different forums over time to do mm. that from Bread and Jam in your house in Broccoli. Mm. And you've created the podcast, Chats in Lockdown, to keep artists connected with one another. And, you know, I can see that through quite a lot of your work, the paintings enact some sort of collective thinking, collective figuring out. This exhibition has been all about lockdown. There must be something that drives you to do all these connecting things. I mean, I'd say the work was made in lockdown, but it's not about lockdown. Trigonometry, for instance, was a pre-existing painting that was begun before the lockdown and was worked through during it. And I'm sure there's some kind of influence, that conscious state of being in that weird space Mm. had but I think it's not so much that as I think why do you keep making painting and it's sort of a constant searching I mean maybe it's a metaphor for just the state of Mm. how I cope with existence yeah the idea of of looking for something but also wanting to share that and wanting to learn from other people I mean it's like telling stories you know this kind of wish we had spaces to do that more to sit and tell stories to each other because it's a way to relate it's a way to feel safe it's a way to realize that you're not alone actually I think the podcast and Bread and Jam both came out of really kind of, you know, not nice feelings. With Bread and Jam, I was working full time and I wasn't really painting. I was feeling quite desperate. And because it's desperation, you don't question it, you just do it. And it was about having the space when I knew so many artists were struggling with space. And and it was not dissimilar from the chats with artists. I wanted to do a podcast before that as part of a residency with Milton Keynes Art Centre. I didn't know anything about podcasts. I didn't know anything about how to record it. Everything was no, I can't, can't, obstacle, barrier. Mm. One way or another, I didn't manage it then. But somehow under the lockdown period, I just, um, again, felt that kind of fire to do it. All the shows that I had were either cancelled or postponed. I felt really kind of stuck. I was coming to the studio with thinking, what's the point in painting when people are suffering? And there's a real sense of collective trauma and Mm, mm. is this helpful? And feeling quite impotent. I guess I was just thinking everything I was feeling, a lot of other people who are particularly creatives were feeling. So I just thought maybe it's a way to reach out and Mm. nothing's going to happen for a year. Everything's stopped. It starts to unpick itself really quickly. So it's Mm. unraveling Mm. and the way to stop it is to reach out to someone and it helped. I think now they've changed. Now I'm very much more researching the artists that I'm speaking with and I don't know them necessarily because as it developed it became about what else needs addressing or what else is a problem or what else is this week are we dealing with whether that was like childcare or education or Grenfell the anniversary I've always had this question of how to be an activist especially if you're in isolation in the studio doing something which feels quite privileged to just be a painter on your own making paintings about things you're interested in that you can't fully explain and if you want to shift something and change something, what else can you be doing? And I think being open and trying to question things collectively is one of those ways. Yeah. Please tell me, Emma Cousin, what book are you reading now? Oh, singular. 
Um, so the thing to say with choosing a novel, the reason it was so difficult was potentially because I read like cross contaminate. So Who does that? Everyone. <laughs> so, but the idea of like reading five at the same time, um, and I guess because of the cross contamination, yeah, and you start to make links and connections. And my, I'm quite impatient, and the way my brain works is quite flitty mm-hmm. sometimes. I can paint for hours, but yeah. um, so uh, so anyway. So and I tend to have them in different spaces of my life, like whether that's one in my bag, one in, by the bed, one in here, um, one downstairs, for instance. Um, so different. That just seems so decadent to me. It is. To, I mean, it is. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So saucy and outrageous. It is quite outrageous, it. but it is also ridiculous in that. You sort of never finish anything, and you, you know, I can't tell you about a story, and because they're all, they're all, <laughs> they're all parts of each other. Um, You've got characters leaping across no, exactly. pages. Yeah, <laughs> you start to build a whole another narrative. So I think Anne Carson said that, that the way she writes is she puts three books on a desk and tries to find a way that they could fit together. Anyway, so that does start to happen a bit, which is helpful in making painting because it feels like it's a terrain of ghosting ideas, ghosting narratives, ghosting paintings. But I'm reading Eula Bliss on Immunity. It's annoying because it's sort of a lockdown read, like it's on these reading lists, but uh, it's one of those Fitzcarraldo editions, which are so beautiful. So I just was seduced into buying it. It's amazing. It's essays rather than a novel. I'm reading Ear Witness by Elias Canetti. And I read Crowds and Power, his main kind of thesis, which is massive. I say read, I dipped into bits of it and then lost my thread. Mm. Ear Witness is incredible because it's basically a series of, I think it's 80 characters. They're given a title and then it's like a description of the character. So there's something about this character building that's really interesting in it and the fact that it's taking the mick out of everybody. And also you, you're never a singular character. You're actually all 80. Right. So he's tried to look at all the characters that he maybe he is or that he knows exist and describe them all. And mm. if you add them all together, that's kind of a human being. So it's a really, really great book. And it's short little chapters of each character. So they also build on each other and, and you can dip in and out of it really nicely. I don't know, maybe it's an expansion of the Sartre book. Eisenstein on Disney, because I was trying to think about, I mean, cartoon and line, but especially about drawing, he writes a lot about drawing being this, like, plastic thing. The form can turn into something else, and it can kind of self-animate, and it talks about the logic of an idea, and then the emotion that has to kind of be more subconscious. And when you bring the two together, that's when something genius happens. So Mm. it's a great immersion book along, wow. alongside watching Eisenstein films uh, which are also incredible uh, he was like the king of montage so mm. uh, quite like uh, eye blinding but they have like great scenes of meat and kind of gross amazing scenes of close ups of things repeated and like a bombardment for the senses in a way mm. sort of amazing wow that sounds really freaky John Stesica did a film oh yeah like I love that. yeah with constantly changing images so just speaking of nausea it was nauseating it was really really effective Mm. and just so that everybody listening knows as Emma was going through all those books she was reading I was nodding quite knowingly as if I have read them all but I've read none of them actually (laughs) (laughs) well that's nice I mean there's so many books that it's an endless that's the other thing and that's why I like that character he's working his way through the alphabet like that's the only way to do it I read around the painting, so the themes in the right, painting. So right. through the show, I was reading a lot about nature and like the overstory um, by okay. Richard Powers, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Joanna Pocock's um, Surrender, yeah. uh, and Derek Jarman's Diaries. 
Well, for now, let's just <laughs> take a breath and say thank you very much, Emma, for being on Art Fictions today. Thanks so much. Thank you to this week's guest and to all the artists who continue to inspire this podcast. And thank you for listening to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knight. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, please review, and of course you're welcome to get in touch with me directly if you'd like more information via my Instagram, artfictions2020, or my website, gillianknight.co.uk. Across these you'll find images of the artist's work, as well as any relevant links we mentioned today. Many thanks to Griffin Knight for his original music composition and performance. Happy reading and art viewing till next time. Is this the end? <laughs> that wasn't so, I mean, I don't know how long that was, but don't look. Oh, wow. Quarter yes. fart. <laughs> that is a long time. Oh, my God, we can really talk. That's going to be... <laughs>